Good morning. I just say what an encouragement it is, worshiping alongside you and uh, being able to hear some of the prayer updates and the things that God is doing in our community and in our lives. It is something I really do look forward to every week. And for those of you who have been following my ministry updates the last little bit, you'll know my, my January schedule has been crazy, and it's involved a lot of travel out of town for school and ministry purposes. And uh, for me, one of the things that has been a great encouragement in this past month or so has just been seeing how much this community really does have people who are serving and leading and, uh, and taking care of things, even just in a volunteer capacity, so that I, as pastor, feel safe about the fact that if I go away for, for a week, I know that things aren't going to fall apart. Um, and that, that may sound like a little thing, but the honest truth is I know a lot of pastors who don't feel like they can do that, right? And so thank you for being the type of community that supports each other, that prays for each other, that cares for each other, and, uh, and is, is making sure that this place is a good, safe, friendly, uh, missional environment for the people around us. Uh, and I, I think God really has blessed this community. So thank you for being that kind of community. Um, for those who, uh, who have been with us uh, the past few months, they, they will be aware of the fact that we have been kind of really coming back to a set of themes quite a few times in this past year. This is something that we've been uh, opening up over and over again, this question of how is it that we go about sharing our faith with others and what is it that we're supposed to exist for as a church. And, uh, and this is something we're hitting home because of the fact that as elders we're convicted, we really need to pay attention to this because we believe God is calling us to a particular calling here in this place as a church. Um, and, and one of the questions that gets asked a lot in theology, in Bible study, in church leadership, is the question of what is the mission of the church? This is a question that has a lot of different answers throughout many different denominations and throughout history. Different branches of the church have answered this in different ways. Um, but there are two passages that I think everybody agrees on. These, these two passages really factor in, in a big way in terms of understanding what the mission of the church is. The first, no surprises, is what's often called the Great Commandment. And this really is, I think, a, a summary uh, on Jesus' part of what it is that we as people really are made for. And, and uh, he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? What is the thing that's most important for God's people to be doing? And he says simply, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Uh, and you notice the scripture reading today was out of Leviticus. Uh, it, when, when Diane saw that I had put that in uh, for our schedule this week, she, she actually phoned me up and said, Ben, the scripture reading is from Leviticus this week. Are you sure that's what you wanted? <laughs> I said, yes, absolutely it is. Because, because I wanted to pull out that passage in Leviticus that Jesus is drawing from when he makes this statement about loving your neighbor as yourself. Because this is not just a one-off thing. That appears in Scripture. But all through Scripture, God instructs His people to love Him and to love one another, right? And that, that is really central to what God wants His people to look like and to be as a people. And alongside this, we recognize that in a world where people do not do this, where they do not love God, they do not love each other the way that they ought, we have another statement by Jesus that is generally drawn upon when talking about the question of what is the church's mission. And this is what's called the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. And then he commands his followers, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
and, and you've probably heard many sermons on this topic and, and read different articles on this topic that talk about the fact that this really boils down to a couple of primary components. The, the first is simply that we're supposed to go, and, and in going, we're supposed to go to the whole world, and then we're supposed to make disciples, and that's what the baptizing is a shorthand for, and we're supposed to help mature disciples, which is what the teaching is shorthand for, and that we're doing that all in the presence of God. And so, so theologians come back to this and say, this obviously is a pretty essential part of what it means to be the church in this fallen world that we live in, and, and part of our mission, right? And so we, we as elders, having looked at these passages and many of the others, uh, a, a couple of years ago, attempted to summarize these ideas in the verses into a simple mission statement which we think captures the call that all Christians should feel, which is to invite people to know God personally and to participate in his plan to rescue the world from sin through his son Jesus. So that's something that we think is our mission and really is the mission of the church throughout all of history, throughout all different contexts. And we think this is something that doesn't just involve, you know, one particular type of person or one particular stage of the journey, but this is really something that encompasses the whole of the Christian walk. I, I like to visualize the whole of the Christian walk with a little bit of a timeline. It starts with people who are longing and seeking. They don't even necessarily know what they're longing and seeking for, but their heart is stirring up a desire for something and gradually pointing them towards God. And over time, as they explore that, they begin to gain a basic understanding of who this God is and what this message is that we call the gospel. And, and then they begin to engage more seriously and to say, I want to learn about this. I want to grow in this. And this leads up to that point when they can finally make a personal commitment to say, yes, I follow this man, Jesus Christ, and I give my life over to him. And, and after that point in time, we expect that there will be a stage where they're learning more and they're seeing what that commitment plays out and the Holy Spirit is working in their life. And there begins to be significant life changes that take place. Sometimes they're very quick. Sometimes they're a little bit more gradual. But we do see those changes taking place in people's lives. And gradually they develop what we would call a mature Christian character. And, and, and for most, I think, they reach a point where after years of growing and maturing and learning, then they begin to get to a place where they realize, not only am I called to follow God with my life, but I'm actually called to invest in others, to pass this on to others, to be able to help them learn and grow along the spectrum as well. And so as we carry out Jesus' commandment to Matthew 28, we walk alongside people at all stages of this journey. But I think as we look at this, and if we're honest with ourselves, we'll recognize that there's a certain part of this that we're stronger at, and there's a certain part of this that we're weaker at. And I don't know about you, but, but for me, I think when it comes to the people who are already engaging pretty seriously, and the people who have made a personal commitment and are taking those first steps of faith, and the people who are making significant life changes and we're kind of helping disciple them up, I think the church has done a pretty good job. Right? Those are things that we've, we've put a lot of time, energy, resources into, but I think for many of us, if we're honest, we'd say ourselves and maybe the church communities we've been a part of have not been quite as strong at meeting the needs of those who are just at the very basic elements of that first stage, right? The people who have those longings stirring inside of them and are maybe demonstrating some interest in Christianity. And I think, really, those people we often don't even see. We don't have a deep relationship with. And, and sometimes when we meet them, they're asking all sorts of questions and raising all sorts of issues. They were kind of like, I don't, I don't really know how to handle this, <laughs> right? This is kind of scary for me, right? And I think this is, this is probably a natural thing, especially for those of us who have been in the church a long time. Sometimes it seems like a long time ago that we were in that category, if ever. 
I, I mean, I have to be honest. I, I was raised in, in a Christian home, and I committed my life to Christ when I was three, so I don't really even have a strong memory of being so disconnected from God that I had those faint longings. It was just always part of my life, right? So, so for me, even when I committed my life personally, it was really starting out more at the engaging seriously step, right? So it's probably natural that it's harder to reach out to those people. But, but alongside this, I think there's, there's a risen historically, and that's because of the fact that through church history, we have gotten ourselves into a position where we take for granted that the people around us already have some Christian experience. Uh, we, we look at the history of Christianity, and originally it emerged in a pluralistic culture a lot like our own, the Roman Empire. And, and ultimately, it became the state religion under a man named Constantine. And, and through the Dark Ages, Christianity was preserved for the forms of monasteries and other, uh, other, uh, other methods that kept it going, um, and it really contributed to the European Renaissance. But within that, there had emerged this idea that, that the church really was a part of our culture and that everybody should be part of it, right? And it was just assumed. And so under the Reformation, it, it became normal that different states, different countries organized around certain types of church, and they just assumed their whole population was going to be part of that. And this is what we call Christendom. But over time, that Christendom was undermined by modernity. And, and really, Christianity lost its primary role in our culture during the 20th century. And, and so we end up in this funny position where, where many of our evangelism tactics that are handed down to us from our forebears kind of assume that everybody went to church, that they were baptized as a kid, that they grew up with a basic understanding of the faith, and that if they're walking away from God, it's because of the fact that they just don't have much knowledge of how to live it out in their lives. There's a really a thirst there. There's a, a set of core ideas there. And we just kind of need to spark that thirst again and say, okay, get that going, <laughs> right? And, and so we see this idea of revivals where, where Christian people are coming back to their faith en masse and, and we're seeing a, a great change culturally. But, but a lot of historians are saying, actually, that time is mostly past. We're now in a place where we can't assume that everybody has the desire to go to church or even has gone to church in their life. We're at a place in history where we have to assume that many people have no understanding whatsoever of this faith. They don't have any emotional attachment to it whatsoever. They're not even necessarily against it. They just don't care because it's not part of something that's on their radar. And so this for us as a church is a challenge. We recognize that we, we are kind of entering new space, new territory as a culture, and that we have to re-envision what it means to be the church in this type of environment. And so as elders, we've talked and prayed and read and discussed what we think God is calling us to. And, and alongside this, we realized we're kind of at a unique juncture in our church's life where it had been bigger and got smaller, and now we're revitalizing and we're seeing new people coming. And we're kind of going, okay, what are, we, what are we rallying behind as a purpose? And what has come about is this sense of vision that we have for what we want to become. Which is, which is that we want to become a congregation where we all work together to see those outside of the church come or return to faith. And this is really what we believe we're supposed to be. We're not a church that exists for its own sake. We're not a church that even assumes that if we do the right things here, then people will start coming to faith. Instead, we recognize that we need to go out. We need to pursue people out in their natural environments and say, hey, we're coming to you because we love you and God loves you. Right? And that's something that we have to work together on and that we have to really try and intentionally cultivate because it's very easy to remain in the bubble instead of going out into the world. So this is, this is something we've been coming back to a lot this last little while. And in the fall, Brent did a series on some of the barriers that prevent us from doing that. 
And so he spent quite a few weeks talking about some of the things emotionally and spiritually and, and, and practically that can get in our way from doing it. Uh, and coming into the new year, he said to me, Ben, alongside this kind of overcoming of the barriers, it would be really great to do some practical teaching on how. How do we do this in the first place? And so that's what I want to spend this week and next week doing. Having considered this vision in the historic context we're in, I wanted to just spend a couple weeks talking about how do we do this. And I think really that when it comes to this witnessing, when it comes to sharing our faith with those who maybe don't even have any emotional attachment to it in the first place, um, a distinction by John Dixon is helpful. He says that there's two primary elements that go into this. The first is that we promote the gospel, that we have to live our lives in such a way that people say, wow, there's something different about these people, and I, wanna, I want in on that. This is something that's exciting, what I'm seeing in the lives of these people. And I think that promoting the gospel can be broken down into a couple different elements. The first is neighboring, which is building deep relationships with the people right in front of us. The second is that we need to pray for people and and invite God to work in their lives and to open their eyes to see what it is that he's doing in their lives. And the third is that we need to serve others. We need to be really intentional about using our gifts to demonstrate our love for our neighbors, just as Christ loved us. And then alongside this, of course, we need to get to a place of being able to proclaim the gospel, to be able to speak about it and to share it with others verbally. And and, and this, too, can be broken down into a few elements. Uh, The three that I've identified that I'd like to talk about next week is what I call testimonying. (laughs) There's not a good verb for that. (laughs) Sharing your testimony, the story of how God has worked in your life. There's also evangelizing, which is really just sharing the good news, the gospel that we have. And the last one is answering tough questions, because you will find that many questions come your way when you're living a life that's different and you're sharing with people about this good news that we have. And, and so these are the things that I'd like to consider, and I recognize these, these talk, talks will be a little bit of an information dump, okay? So I, I'm acknowledging that. Um, but as we look at these first elements, these, these elements of neighboring, praying, and serving, I think that we'll see, A, they're biblical, And B, they're not that hard to do. They're not that complicated, but they are something that take a lot of motivation on our part. So very briefly, I want to look at Luke 10, 1 to 12, because I think it lays out these principles that I talked about here, neighboring, praying, and serving. And then I'm going to do a really quick whirlwind look at some of the practical things that I think we need to do to be able to live them out, okay? So Luke 10, verses 1 to 12. This is a scene where Jesus is equipping his followers to go out and fulfill their mission. And and kind of like our culture, Jesus is doing this in a context where people have not yet heard this good news. Many of them don't take for granted the things that he is teaching and preaching. And and so we see that he begins investing in people to help equip them to go out and do it. And first he sends out 12 disciples. And now in Luke 10, he's taken that 12 and expanded their influence and using their, their resources, their teaching as well. Then he appoints 72 to go out. So we see, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bags, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be on this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. 
But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Okay, so we have this scene where Jesus is equipping, sending out. And I think, again, here we can see some of these principles that I'm talking about when we, we talk about neighboring, praying, and serving. In the middle of this, Jesus, Jesus starts out by saying, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And this is a good reminder to me of the fact that um, rather than seeing the responsibility all resting on Jesus, Jesus turned the tables and said, no, no, this responsibility is on you as well. So we need all hands on deck to do this task. And, and he says, you need to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. So Jesus is using this imagery of, of fields that have grown ripe for harvesting. And, and he's saying, God is the one who's already cultivating that. It's him who's gone out, who's planted seeds in people's lives. It's him who's made sure that all of the, the, the ripeness is there. It's, it's God who ultimately controls people's interest in spiritual things. And so if it's ripe, it's his doing. And if it needs to ripen, it's God who has to ripen it. And we need to pray to the Lord of the harvest the same way that we need to pray for him to provide for our food. We need to pray for him to provide the opportunities for us to witness. This is an important acknowledgement. Our mission is God's mission, first and foremost. And really, if it's not God's mission, we're up against a wall. Because we recognize our abilities to change people's hearts and minds are pretty limited, really. But time and time again, you will hear people who are out there witnessing to others say, you know what's amazing? This thing happened where I realized God was already setting up the conversation, and all I had to do was join in on it. <laughs> Daryl kind of shared a story like that this morning, right? Well, that's, that's the type of thing that happens a lot when you're out witnessing to people. And, and so because of that, we recognize our dependence on God, and we need to go out prayerfully, asking God, can you send me? Can you empower me? Can you open up those opportunities? And God, can you give me the eyes to see it and the wisdom to respond the way that I ought? Everything that we do needs to be underpinned by prayer. Then we see Jesus says an interesting instruction. First, he's sending them out, but then he says, once you get to the place you're going, do not move from house to house. And he repeats that by saying, eat what is set before you. <laughs> right? So there's this idea that there's kind of a paradox here. On one hand, we're sent out, but then we're to stay put, right? And this is, this is recognizing the fact that really the impact that we have comes about primarily not through talking to a whole lot of people in a whole lot of places and going everywhere at once. Trying to be all things to all people is not really viable for most of us, if any of us, right? But instead, we're actually supposed to sink down roots where God has called us to be and really get to know the people deeply. A broad impact is born out of a deep impact, first and foremost. Now, now, that being said, we have to pay attention to the call to move. Some of us may be called to move if we get serious about following God's leading in our lives. Some of us may be to international missions. Others may be to something local. There's a great movement in bigger cities here in Canada and in the States called Move In 
that tries to encourage people to move out of their nice, cushy houses and move into households that are in broken down, uh, run-down neighborhoods so that they can get to know people and love them. And a lot of the time they appeal to young adults and people who have a little bit more opportunity to do something like that without feeling like it jeopardizes their family's safety, right? But, you know, there, there are movements that say maybe it's time not to just stay where we are but actually get up and uproot ourselves and move into another neighborhood. But not all of us are going to be called to do that. What we are called is not just to stay here in our nice, safe Christian bubble, but to go, not for the sake of going, but for the sake of finding who God is calling us to serve and laying down roots and getting to know them deeply and, and, and receiving hospitality and giving hospitality so that we get to build deep relationships. That's what I call the art of neighboring. And, and last but not least, we see Jesus saying, well, while you're there, you need to heal the sick. And then you need to say that the kingdom of God has come close. And so we see the sense that Jesus links the good actions that Christians are supposed to do along with the message that they're supposed to preach. That, that we're, we're actually serving as a little bit of a taste of what God wants to do in people's lives. And we can get into the debates about what it means to heal the sick. And it's pretty obvious that there's a supernatural connotation in this particular passage. And there's lots of debate about how much that applies to us here today. But Christians throughout the ages have taken the call itself to heal the sick very, very seriously. And one of the reasons why it became the state religion of the Roman Empire is because Christians were among the few people who stuck around when there were plagues and things like that so that they could minister to those who were sick and suffering, even at their own expense, right? That's something that the Roman Empire and people throughout history have noticed about Christians is this uncanny willingness to stick by people who are suffering, people who are hurting, people who are sick, even when it's costly to themselves, And that is a great witness in its own right. So this is what I'm talking about when I say serving others, right? And and Jesus makes it very clear. This is part of our calling as a people group. So I think having shown then that these elements, neighboring, praying, serving, are part of what we're called to do, I just want to spend a couple minutes going through uh, some just practical principles that can help guide us in those tasks. Each of these is taken from a different book that has been helpful in my own thinking. The first one is from a book called The Art of Neighboring, which is where I get that phrase from. And they talk about a few principles that they say we really need to embrace as Christians if we're going to do this well. The first is that we need to be interruptible. This is maybe the biggest one. The reality is that many of us are so busy doing, 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 and often doing things that seem good and are part of church life, but have nothing to do with the world, right? That, that, that we're running around like chickens with our heads cut off, not really paying attention to what it is we're doing, just, just doing whatever we have to to keep on going, right? And if that's the state that we're living in, we will miss all, if not, most if not all of the opportunities put in front of us because so much of what God is doing is subtle and so much of what God is doing relies on being able to see those little moments where God is at work, right? And, and when we're busy, we don't see those things, And even if we do see them, a lot of the time we just move past them, kind of going, okay, God, I guess you'll take care of that person, (laughs) right? And they they really say quite clearly, no, no, you need to slow down. You need to put into your schedule enough flexibility that when your neighbor comes to you and starts chatting, you're able to stop and talk with them. Or or when a coworker is sitting there across from you at lunchtime and and they're looking down, you actually have the time and the, uh, the energy to be able to reach out and say, hey, what's up, right? Whereas if we're always consumed with doing whatever we're supposed to be doing for work or for church or whatever else, then we miss those intimate moments where we can love people and see what God is doing in their lives. So they say we need to be interruptible. We need to be able to have that space in our schedules 
Alongside this, we need to receive hospitality. And this is something Jesus himself is instructing in this passage, right? Eat what's set in front of you. You know, what's funny is this. A lot of the time, it feels safer to invite people to come to our turf. Whether it's inviting them into our home, whether it's inviting them to come out to our church social event, those are good things. And for a lot of people, the welcome they feel in church communities and church families is, is really part of the ministry that they receive, right? So not diminishing the importance of that. But sometimes we need to actually receive hospitality. <laughs> that, that, that when we see that the neighbors around us are actually interested in getting to know us and are inviting us over for barbecues and things like that, we're willing to go and to participate in their life a little bit and, and to be able to join in on special occasions that are going in their households. Because by doing that, we demonstrate we're really interested in them. We're not just interested in them coming and being part of us. right? And that, that speaks very loudly. This one, next one is a little bit challenging. It was certainly challenging for me as a, a recovering legalist who used to think that anything even looking like a party was bad. But they, they say we should attend and or even start parties in our neighborhood and our workplaces. Right? That, that social gatherings where people come together and eat food together and talk with each other and just spend time getting to know each other is one of the main ways that relationships are formed and deepened. Now I know when I use the word party, there's some red flags going off in some people's minds. Well, wait a minute. What about alcohol? What about things that might go on at those parties? I don't know if I can handle that. And that's another principle that they bring out after having mentioned these couple things of receiving hospitality and attending and starting parties is we need to get comfortable with messiness, right? They're really clear. Sometimes your neighbors are going to do things that make you uncomfortable. They're not Christians. They don't live nice, clean, comfortable lives. In fact, if we're honest, many of us don't live those clean, comfortable lives that we promote as the ideal way. Right? So there's messiness inside the church, but we really need to be ready for it if we're going to go outside of the church to people who don't even take for granted the values that we have. They're not even going to put on a show a lot of the time of looking nice. Right? And, and so they say, we just need to get comfortable with that. And one of the classic scenes that I love in Jesus' ministry is right after he calls Levi, the tax collector, to follow him, the very first thing he does is goes to a house party with Levi. <laughs> Right? And I remember one of my youth pastors talking about this and challenging us on this front. And at the time, I was just like, no, Jesus, no, he, well, he wasn't drinking alcohol, that's for sure. Right? Again, we can get into debates about alcohol, but it's, pretty, it's not stated by the authors in any way, shape, or form that Jesus was avoiding the messiness. Instead, we see over and over again, he's even accused by the people around him of being a glutton and being a drunk because of the fact that he's spending time with gluttons and drunks. Right? And we, we just need to get a little more comfortable with that if we're going to be serious about neighboring. At the same time, we do have to maintain healthy boundaries. And this is something they talk about as well. When you're, when you're entering into messy worlds, right, there's going to be times when requests come your way that do jeopardize your family's safety. And, and there's going to be times when it looks like the things that you're being invited to do compromise your own values and faith. And so to be able to say, no, I'm sorry, I'm not part of that. I, I need to abstain from that for whatever reason, is an important skill. And for me, it's an important reminder that even sacrificial love which is something Jesus talks about, right? Even sacrificial love is something that's done intentionally and purposefully. That is something we choose the sacrifice because we can see the impact that it's going to have on somebody's life. We don't just give and give and give and give and give and think, oh, well, if it's, if it's hurting my kids, if it's hurting me, that's just part of sacrificial love. No, not necessarily. Once in a while, we might be t- called to put our well-being behind somebody else's well-being. But we've got to be really careful and intentional about that And that can only be done if we have healthy boundaries in the first place. The ability to say no means we can choose when to say yes. And so that's an important principle for how we engage in neighboring. When it comes to praying, these ones are a little simpler than that one. 
Uh, one book that's been helpful for me is called Penetrating the Darkness. It's written by a charismatic man, and there's some things that I would probably push back inside of it, but I really appreciate some of the principles he draws out. The first is that we should be rooting our prayers for other people in God's promises and character. Do you believe God loves those people that you're going out and meeting? If so, don't be afraid to call on him in that regard. Hey, God, you love this person. You sent your son to die for their sins. I want to see you working in their lives. And he says that's something we're able to do. And in fact, we see a lot of people in Scripture calling on God in exactly that way. Alongside this, we should maintain a list so that we can actually see what's being answered over time. And I use, a, I use a phone app called Echo Prayer for that. There's a lot of different ways that you can do it, but it's actually helpful to have something that you can add to when you hear about a prayer request and that then you can tick off when God answers prayer. And for me, it's very helpful to be able to look back and say, oh, I've actually seen God answering all of these things over the, the last couple of years. Alongside this, we need to be ready to respond to promptings. There will be times when God burdens you with a desire to pray for somebody. And sometimes you won't even know why that is. Sometimes it'll be in the middle of the night and you wake up just thinking about somebody. Or, or once in a while, you'll, you'll be going along driving and suddenly, suddenly that thought occurs to you. I, I, need to, I need to find out more about what they're going through and pray for them. Right? Pay attention to those things. A lot of the time when you do, you find out afterwards they were actually at a really critical moment in their journey and that God was using you to intercede for them. And alongside that, don't just pray for people, pray with them. Right? Be willing to not just say, I will pray for you, but can I pray for you right now? And a lot of the time, that itself speaks volumes about how we care about people and plants seeds that this is not just something that I do, but something they can participate in as well, which is an important part of our witness and, and maybe helps them to see the answers to prayer coming out in their lives with time. Last but not least, when it comes to serving, there's, uh, there's actually a lot of books that are being written on this topic right now because it's been recognized. Sometimes we don't serve in a way that's sustainable, or actually helpful for the people around us. And one of them is, is a series called Helping Without Hurting, which has been written specifically for churches. And in it, they talk about discerning, first of all, the different types of need that exist. That when we see needs in people's lives, sometimes they're in a disaster. That means their survival or well-being is really on the line if action isn't taken immediately. And in those cases, diving right in and acting quickly is a good and important thing. But sometimes that's not really what's needed. And even though it sounds like a crisis that needs immediate action, it's actually recovery that's needed. They're in the middle of a transition season, and what they need is longer-term support while they transition to this new stage of life. Right? And, and so not to, not to immediately act and just throw whatever solutions seem apparent, but to slow down to look and say, okay, what's actually the real long-term supports needed here? And last but not least, sometimes they need development. Sometimes it's actually a skill that's lacking in their own life or an opportunity that they're not taking advantage of within their life. And, and sometimes when you slow down and you look carefully, you can see, wait a minute, I don't need to help you with this. You can help yourself by going over here and doing this. Right? And, and so you can walk alongside them in helping develop the skills that they need, and you can also connect them to other people, which is the next principle, which is that we need to offer help that's within our limits. We need to acknowledge that we have limits of time, resource, uh, resources such as uh, money, energy, etc. Right? And if we don't acknowledge those limits, we quickly burn ourselves out and we don't do anybody any good. And alongside that, we have to acknowledge ability limits. We are good at some things and not good at other things. And so to be able to pass people on to people who are stronger in other areas can often be a more helpful thing than trying to do things that we're not good at. I have a friend who uses an analogy of a rubber band. Imagine around my fingers... I have a really tight rubber band, right? Well, my thumb, I can stretch that thing out as often as I want. That's my strong gifts. 
But with my pinky, if I'm trying to stretch out that rubber band, <clears throat> I'm only going to be able to hold it for a very short period of time, and especially if I'm not using my other fingers, right? That's going to get tiring pretty quickly. I can operate outside of my gifts. Sometimes God calls me to use gifts that are not naturally my own. But a lot of the time he's saying, okay, do that for a short interval, but then call in other people who can do that, right? Meanwhile, play more to the strengths or use your whole hand at once where your other gifts are coming in to support those weaknesses. And again, reminder that sacrificial love is intentional and purposeful. This is something we have to remind ourselves of, especially when we're meeting practical needs. Have healthy boundaries and be intentional about when you say yes. Don't just default to yes every single time. <clears throat> so with these tips in mind, and again, I recognize that's a whirlwind of information that I've just thrown out there. The hardest step is often the first. It's not accidental that Luke follows up the ending of the sending of the 72 right afterwards with a story of Jesus and a Pharisee encountering each other. In it, the Pharisee, he's really trying to defend spending his time focusing on the people that he knows and loves already. And, and so he walks up to Jesus and he says, well, who is my neighbor anyways? When you say about loving my neighbor as myself, who is my neighbor? And what's funny is Jesus tells a story that we're all familiar with, the story of the Good Samaritan, and he doesn't really answer the Pharisee's question. Instead of saying, here is who your neighbor is, he says, look, the Samaritan went and made himself a neighbor to the man who was suffering. Go and do likewise. I think there's a really important message for us there. The takeaway is that God is calling us to go and make ourselves a neighbor to the people around us. That he's put people in our path who have ministry opportunities, and he's saying, go, minister to them. Stop trying to ask, who should I be doing? And just find those opportunities and serve. God has put those opportunities in your path. And, and, and it's often just the courage of being able to take that step, going out and saying, I'm going I'm to get to know these people and love them. That's hard. I want to read a letter. Okay, this is how I'm going to close the sermon. It's written by somebody here in this church who's with us today. They've asked that I don't share their name, and I'm not going to share their address as a result because I think it would give away who it is. But um, right now, they're working on an initiative to neighbor with their friends in their building. And I'm really encouraged by what it is that's going on. And, and she's written up a letter to send out to her neighbors to invite her to this opportunity. And I just loved the sensitivity that was shown in it, as well as the heart that comes out in it uh, for the people around her. So I, I, let me read it. I think this is a great example of somebody practicing neighboring and taking that opportunity. Hello to my fellow neighbors and residents. Warning. Vulnerable moment just ahead. This place, these walls and familiar faces that have become my new home for the last five and a half years, it's hard to believe it has been this long already. The move into here, though, I am sure, like others, had difficult events surrounding it. And having found a few friendly faces and interactions helped smooth the way to start a new life. Okay, the vulnerable moment's done. Whether you have landed at Myrtle Terrace for awesome or other reasons, building a sense of community and belonging is important. It recently came to my attention that in the years prior to coming here, there used to be a thriving sense of community. The rec room was utilized for events and get-togethers for games and various activities. Due to different reasons known and otherwise, it slowly fizzled out. You might think it fizzled out for good reasons, and, like the demise of dinosaurs, perhaps ought to be left for the ancient ruins. But I believe that building a sense of belonging in our communities is always a good thing. After all, this world can be a lonely place. 
And even if you don't find uh, it a lonely place and have a packed life, building connections with others, in proximity to you is still a great thing. You never know when life might get challenging and you desperately need a friendly face close by or when you might be able to make an impact in the life of someone that needs caring. I will save you all the documented stats on these types of things. Thank you, and you're welcome. So, to kick it all off, there will be dinner coming up in the community recreation room on the third floor, and more sporadic things to come. <laughs> and then she lists reasons that you cannot come. Well, if you're busy this Friday, that's okay. There will be more dinner nights coming. Do you have social anxiety? That's okay, so do I. <laughs> do you have kids? That's okay, bring them along. Can you not stand crowds? That's okay. Take a breath, grab a plate, and take it back to your apartment. But staying is better. You get the idea. We're flexible like that. So please see the enclosed poster and details for instructions. Warmest regards. I just loved that. It, to me, it just spoke volumes of being aware of what it is that your neighbors might be going through as they read this and, and hear about this opportunity and saying, it's okay. My life is messy too. But let's just share in that mess a little bit together. Right? I'm encouraged by this, and I hope that we can take more opportunities like this to reach out to the people around us, get to know them, and then see what God can do in their lives. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your love, for sending your Son, Jesus, to be our Savior and demonstrating your love for us and for the whole world. Father, may we not exist in this church bubble for its own right, but may this be a place of equipping and sending that we might go out into the world and see the people that you've put in front of us and take the opportunities to love, to bless, to pray, to serve the people that you've put in our path. And Father, through that, might we see many more people here in Peterborough coming to know you and to love you and to have their lives transformed for the better. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.